Hello, everybody. Welcome to the French Village Podcast. I'm here with my brilliant friend, Ben Wittes, for the last time to it's talk tragic. about the French Village. It's tragic. I'm sorry. It's, it's been ending. a long journey. It has been a long journey. Seven seasons, a gazillion, 80 episodes or something. And, uh, and this very frustrating end with some great parts and some terrible parts and and uh but this is the last episode it's 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 horrible yeah so i'm just looking here we have done i should have got we have done it says 33 episodes this is our 34th and so if we were doing two i think that's about right it's close to 80 episodes of the show and we've i mean that's a we've done a lot of these it's a fair bit and and we've both taken a lot of heat for it sarah has been uh mocked by jvl and tim miller and bill crystal everybody in the bulwark staff except mona charon who is sort of the godmother of the the podcast um she's the best and uh and the only one who doesn't make fun of sarah about it <laughs> um i uh, continue to get bewildered tweets and inquiries about what this is by people who, um, I've, you know, my Twitter follower count has gone down, I think, because <laughs> there are a lot of people who are not interested in the French village. Um, and yet we are unbowed. Yeah. And you know what? I get it. After 33 episodes of me mispronouncing French things, uh, I've taken, I, I get it. I don't, my French pronunciations are not good. Um, that being said, I want to think there has been a very consistent 5,000 or so of you who, whether you watch the show or not, listen to this podcast every week. And I just want to say, we, can we just yeah. have a moment to appreciate the people who listen to the podcast without watching the show? I don't understand it, <laughs> but I appreciate it. Don't understand. But but I just thanks to everybody who who decided that they wanted to go on this journey with us, you know, because the goal, like when I first asked Ben to do this in part, it was because, man, we have just been through such a bruising political cycle. And I was like, man, I want to do something. And it's not that this is apolitical, because obviously, I think actually it gets to central questions of our time. But it also was just a little more fun. And, um, and, and not as you know, it doesn't have to be focused on the intricacies of the politics of our day. And so um, and we don't I'm, have to say reconciliation or insurrection or okay. Donald Trump or Joe Biden or, or Joe Manchin or, Joe or, Manchin or Cinnamon or yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like it's a way of, it's a great way of talking about the themes of the period without talking about the news uh, and uh, that has been super fun and super interesting. And uh, I also, while we're saying some thank yous, I think we have to give a particular shout out to um, a particular conservative pundit who uh, did not seem to understand that the show was about him. Um, He's talking about you, Ross. He's yeah. talking about you. Um and wrote a lovely commentary on the show with, uh, I think, what they call in the mental health community, no evident self-awareness. Um, <laughs> and then finally, I do think I said this on Twitter, but I do think we have to, we like owe a particular debt to Lucienne 
for uh, making such consistently bad life choices that uh, we never run out of things to talk about. I am not on the hate Lucienne train. I'm just not. In fact, I disagree from with a central premise of you from the whole time, which is that she got those kids killed. I think it was that dude that got the kids killed. She has been dragged along by a bunch of other people. She now granted she could she has agency. She's the, she's the kind of person who gets herself dragged along. <laughs> yeah, with, I know. You know, I know, like, I know. No one forced her yeah, to uh, you know, date the Nazi, bring the kids to the uh, you know, follow the. Uh, she dated a German. I think slightly. Hortense dated a Nazi. That's true. Kurt, Kurt is a is a decent fellow. Um, all right. So wait before we get to the big wrap up themes because we we've got some agenda items that we got to go over. Um, but let's first finish the conversation from last week about how these you know these various plot threads end. Mm, um because okay. like we have we have more information now than we did last week we know how all these various threads end, and i think we can finish our what last week was a quite negative evaluation a uh, quick correction before we do i misspoke last week inexplicably and said that uh birkenau was the concentration camp associated with Auschwitz, uh, the opposite is the case. Auschwitz one is the concentration camp. Birkenau is the death camp. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure how I got my tongue tied on that. Okay. So. So let's 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 hit these last three episodes. And, and you're right. We have more information now. Tell me what was you saw them sort of wrap up because they do kind of take us to life's end with most of our main characters. How did how did things feel resolved for you? Or, or did you get more insight about what you think they're trying to tell us with this episode, this, this last season? So mostly not. Um, I thought these three episodes were significantly better than the previous three. Yes. Um, but they, and they resolved some questions pretty elegantly, uh, particularly related to the communists, which I thought, it handled actually quite beautifully. Uh, we'll talk about that later. But um, the there are some inexplicable hanging open questions. We uh, this whole thing about Raymond Schwartz's arrest for the Cabernet murder uh, and confrontation with uh, Hubert, and then we never find out what happens. He's the last scene with them is. Him holding them, uh, him and and Amelie, uh, uh, and we kind of know he survives that, but we really don't know what happens to Raymond Schwartz. I've never quite—I don't understand the choice to leave that open. Uh, uh, the um, the resolution of—I quite liked the resolution of the character of Gustave, by contrast. Uh, which I thought was uh, dense and complicated and interesting, and um, and I sort of I liked the resolution of the character of Danielle Larche until the very end when they use his heart attack as a way to do flashbacks 
through his whole life, and then uh, and then a meeting with his brother, uh, both now dead. I thought that was a little bit cheap, but I thought the the basic resolution of Danielle Larche um, is quite good, um, actually. What did you think? Uh, well, I am uh, so I like these episodes considerably better. It's funny. I didn't mind the Daniel kind of flashback stuff. I didn't mind it. Just because your life flashes before your eyes doesn't mean it needs to flash through my, before my eyes, filmmakers. I liked liked seeing it, though, because I felt like it it actually told us something. I mean, I, I, the way, the complicated way he felt about Hortense, the, the way that he had to watch, you know, the, the regret that he felt about what happened at the school, um, how he thought about Sarah. I, I don't know. I, I was sort of, I, and Marcel, I was sort of glad to see all, I mean, I think it was a way for you to see all of them at the end. Um, and there, I think, I do think that the show suffers um, at the end in this last season from an absence of a bunch of people that we really like watching. There is very little Muller. There is very little. There's no Marie. Uh, maybe she's in a flashback or two. Um, there is, you know, Sarah is gone. Um, did I already say Marcella is gone? I mean, you know, so like just a bunch of people that we got used to living with in the show, you don't have. And instead, you have, you know, a lot of cake makeup on, you know, older versions that are in various time, you know, but but I but one but I I didn't like so here's I'll tell you one I, I continued to not like um Hortense's insane asylum stuff. However, I did go research it. And I do think I understand why this is in here. And I just want oh, to tell interesting. you. So if you uh Google, because I'm not gonna say I did so much research, but if you start Googling around for post-World War II insane asylums. They don't give you that much on post-World War II, but apparently there was a massive um, body of research that emerged around what they called the gentle extermination about how people in mental institutions during the war specifically were just all starved to death. And, um, And how there was no accountability for it until much later. And there was actually a huge fight within the psychiatric community that I think kind of mirrors the moral, the moral complexity of the war in general and the way everybody behaved. And, and because it's adjacent to being a doctor, uh, it's an, it's sort of an interesting addition if you care to like dive into it and really think about it, which is, and, and so Larche has this conversation with the psychiatrist where the psychiatrist tells him, and this is true to history, according to what I read, that during the war there was no food, that they got no, they got no food for these patients and nobody cared about the old and the sick and the crazy. And so they were dealing with the fact that they were just dying. And they had this kind of like, what were we supposed to do? Like, how were we supposed to help? If we didn't have any food, we didn't have any medicine, there's a war going on. These are the least among us, you know, the, 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 in their the way they're talking about it. Um, like, what were we supposed to do? 
And and that that was a, a there was a so there was a big and then there was apparently in the 90s and even later kind of a reckoning, a looking back at what happened and and really grappling with it as a country in the way that they they treated mental illness in the in the mid 40s. So that's super interesting. And I didn't know that. Um, uh, so there's a few added factors uh, and if I'd known that uh, this was going to come up, I would have refreshed my memory on it. But of course, before the Holocaust, uh, in the late 30s, the Germans, the Nazis ran what was called the euthanasia program, which was a uh, euphemism for the systematic murder of 70 or 80,000 uh, people in mental institutions uh, and uh, people with physical disabilities. Um, and uh, the euthanasia program was actually stopped because of opposition from, you know, churches. And uh, I mean, it was it was super controversial, even within the context of Nazi Germany, but it was a kind of road test for the Holocaust. And, you know, killing off large numbers of people in, in asylums was a big part of it. And the um, uh, uh, and so this takes place against a background in which, uh, you know, the Germans were occupying France, but, you know, had just engaged in the systematic killing of tens of thousands of their, the intentional killing, not the starvation of a lot of people of in their own, uh, uh, you know, assisted care facilities of one sort or another. And so there's a, uh, you know, they, they killed a lot of people with mental disabilities, a lot of people with mental illnesses. Um, and so, you know, one, one interesting question that I don't know the answer to is to what extent was this you know, a negligence and food shortage thing. And to what extent was it, you know, Vichy had a lot of Nazi influence, right? And to what extent was it a a, a kind of eugenic uh, thing? And I, you know, I, I do not know the answer to that. So so I don't know it either, but just based on the JSTOR articles, the few JSTOR articles that I went through, it sounds like there was a debate about that where you had some doctors arguing that what were they supposed to do? They had no food, they had no medicine, and they were like, did their best. And that it was unfair, you know, to judge them for this period of time. And then you had another group of people that was like, actually, you guys were doing really terrible things to people. And you were using this as an experimentation on electrotherapy. And, um, you know, so, so I don't know, but I guess it's, it was, it is a, it clearly was a serious and big enough controversy that has been relitigated throughout the decades in France, that I think that's why it's in the show, is my main point. Is that See, like but, but 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 I think this goes back to something we were talking about last week, which is that I suspect a lot of the things that we dislike about this season, the more you know about French post-war history, the 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 less uh irrelevant this was so this is like a logical extension as you describe it of some of the moral quandaries of the war and the occupation that the show exposes there's another example of this uh which is a completely passing reference 
Uh, it's we're, We'll talk later about the disappearance of Suzanne, but uh, there's only one reference to what happens to Suzanne after the war and after she leaves the party, and that's when Larche asks Gustave, uh, are you in touch with Suzanne at all? And he says, no, I saw that she gave a speech on the the vile law. Uh, and that, so this is 1975, this takes place. And the uh, loi vile, the, the, the vile law, which is a reference to Simone Vile, the, the health minister, is the law that legalized abortion in France in 1975. Hmm. Um, and vile, by the way, was an Auschwitz survivor. Um, and so, which is surely known to the makers of the film. Um, and, you know, so it's this totally passing reference. Oh, yeah, she spoke. The implication is that she's a member of, of uh, you know, a legislator now or something. But she spoke in the National Assembly about the in favor of the vile law. So she goes, um, you know, uh, and you you actually have to know, like I had to look it up. Um, uh, but that's a reference that I think if you have any sense of post-war French feminism, that, that law is a big deal. Interesting. Yeah, I actually, I'm glad you did that because I, I clocked it that, that they talk about it, um, but I didn't know what it meant. Um, I, I will say, so there's a, so I want to just quickly agree with you on the Schwartz unresolved Hubert showing up with a gun and how obnoxious and annoying that is. And it's the reason I think I was, you know, kind of mad last week. Like it's stuff like that that makes me feel like, like if you, like you look at the Hortense thing and you're like, okay, no, actually this is relevance. I've looked it up. Like, okay, this, this mattered, but like, there's no excuse for that Schwartz storyline. None. Well, and there's no, and there's no, sometimes they resolve the characters in exquisite detail, right? Like Hortense. Um, and sometimes Schwartz is as important a character in the story as Hortense is. And yet we know he survives that incident because the last thing Daniel Larcher does is open a condolence letter from yes. him. Yes. Um, but we have no idea what the resolution of him is as a as a character, and that that I um, I find like the decision, the excruciating detail of the of Lucienne's resolution versus the total disappearance of Suzanne Richard. I don't understand um, the you know we learn about every interaction that Larche has uh, later in life and nothing about what happens to Raymond. I find that very hard to understand. Yeah, I mean, they do give you... So it's... They, they, they make choices about resolving... Some people get to resolve in death. Like, we follow Daniel all the way to his death. Suzanne, we resolve... When she confronts Edmund after realizing that Edmund has allowed the raid on the sawmill to happen for his own political advantage, and as happy as she is to see Max, she looks at Edmund and just says, never talk to me again. And Edmund really is one of those benign, oh, but 
just villains of this show. And I, Suzanne always, she did stand on principle and she did it again there. And the passing reference to her was enough because I feel like we saw who she was again. It was reinforced that in that moment, you know, the communists, she was never, she was never going to not be a good person for, to, to advance an ideology. Yeah. So we've ragged on the way a certain set of things are resolved in the show. I want to take a moment to really appreciate the way they treat the post-war communists. Mm -hmm. Um, Because as they caricature the Americans in ways that we criticized last week, the treatment of the communists here is very deep and very thoughtful. So first of all, And it's done in a very small number of scenes. Uh, So first they have Max come back. uh, And Max has spent time in the Soviet Union uh, after spending time in uh, uh, Odenburg, a, a Nazi concentration camp. And he has seen the horrors of Stalinism and is completely rattled by it and does you know it rocks his world and this is of course happened to many people um and reports this to edmund who buries it um and that is the first quite true picture of what the party was doing in france the the french communist party was was hardcore stalinist until stalin's death um and so stalin's death is now seven years away And anybody who wanted to know what was going on in the Soviet Union, it was not like it was not a well-kept secret. And um, so the second thing is that Edmund begins his own, not just begins, but, um, you know, he is now uh, a candidate for mayor. Uh, That is also completely realistic. The communists were a serious political force really up until... Uh, into this, well into the 70s, they are finally supplanted by the socialists again in with the election of Francois Mitterrand in 80. So five years after the events with with Larcher and uh, and Gustave, um, and we see this, um, uh, you know his willingness to get the strikers killed on Psalm specifically um, in order to make a political point uh, and get himself elected. And this is, uh, you know, and he has this great line, uh, you know, when Max confronts him about it not being true, he says, the truth isn't always revolutionary. Uh, and that's, I just was thought was beautifully portrayed. Um and then um, you see the break um, that's represented by the break between the people who had been and once again became the democratic socialists in France uh, over that incident between him and Suzanne. And she tears up her, her card, her, her party ID card, and she tells him never to speak to him again. Uh, and of course, the socialists be- go on to become, and still are to this day, a you know, 
functioning center-left democratic party in in France. And um, and so the implication when you see the reference to her speaking on behalf of the uh, abortion law in 75 is that she's gone on to play a role in mainstream politics. Um, and of course, the coda for Edmund is that he's he's mayor of Villeneuve for 30 years as a communist. Um, and his son is a member of the National Front. I think it's his which, grandson, but yeah. Um, which is the uh, uh, party that was founded by Jean-Marie Le Pen uh, and is the sort of uh, French far right. Uh, and so there's this subtle, uh, you know, extremism begets extremism, the circles yep. will meet. Um, and the last, and the, the beautiful aspect of the portrayal is that the last shot of Edmund that you see is him standing there after Suzanne has walked out with the portrait of Stalin over his shoulder. Yeah, that's an uh, unsubtle shot. It's it's <laughs> the, there are many subtle aspects of this, um, but um, it's a beautiful, I think, a beautiful portrayal in a very small number of scenes of a lot of what was going on in the French left over the thirty years after the war. Yeah. Hey, uh, so I got to ask you. I'm I'm really interested in what you you think of this. But what did you? So Barrio and uh, Lucienne is briefly in the first three episodes of this season, or or not briefly, she's in it, and you are following. They're 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 actually one of the main plot lines that remains in the in the forties um, as she's poisoning him, uh, and there's the weird priest thing. But what did you make of the old Lucienne, old Barrio plotline and their resolution? So the whole Lucienne. 1945 plotline makes no sense, right? She's bereft about Kurt Berrio, who's been a nice guy his whole life to her, suddenly becomes a monster. She decides to have an affair with a priest uh, and to poison him after she's finished scrubbing and polishing a different priest, a uh, statue of a priest. Um, and so she tries to poison him, but then the priest rebuffs her advances and tells her to live a good life uh, after being quite tempted by her. So she uh, makes friends with Berrio, stops poisoning him, makes friends with him, and they live happily ever after, not in love, but as kind of good friends who were married. And that is their relationship as old people, where he is in dying in a nursing home, and she comes to visit him, and they're very fond of each other in a kind of, um, uh, he still loves her, she never loved him, but is quite fond of him sort of way. There is only one thing about this plot line that makes any sense to me, which is that the actor who plays Berrio is very, very good. And um, and so his half of this stupid story is extremely well portrayed. And I think the old Berrio character, having settled into this contented resignation that 
he will yearn for this woman forever and she will never love him. But the desire to please her is what has animated him for a long time is a quite lovely story. Her half of it makes no sense. Like, she never makes sense. And the story even kind of acknowledges that um, when he asks his their daughter, Francoise, uh, you know, please don't tell her that I'm dying. And Francoise's reaction is, I've never told her anything. Um, which is like, like, she's the most inscrutable person in the world. I'm not telling her anything. Uh, so I think half of this plot line works really well. And um, and half of it is nonsensical. What did you think? So um, I, I had not forgotten that this happens, uh, but I had forgotten how much I kind of liked it. Um, and you are, I was nodding vigorously when you brought up the acting of the guy who plays Barrio, because for whatever it's worth, you know, I think when you put a bunch of, you know, makeup on uh, these characters that you've been with to make them age excessively, it is working to varying degrees of success uh, in, across all of them. Um, Antoine's is sort of weird. And, you know, whatever. the Barrio one is so good. And it is in part because he is doing such a good job of, he's doing that thing that he does where he puts his fingers together. Like his mannerisms are dead on for the young version of him. Um, but he's also palsied. So he's shaking slightly. And like, you just buy that this guy is 90 years old. Lucienne, on the other hand, uh, moves like a 45-year-old. She looks like a 75-year-old, but she's just like, I mean, they they when when they're really hitting, you know, you've, she's got her cane and she's walking, but like every other movement, if she's just getting up from the table or whatever, she's plenty spry. And it doesn't uh it doesn't quite quite work as well. Um, but I just love this scene of them in the garden. And and I love the scenes actually where I, I love every scene that they have together old. I love every scene of it. I love, and the, and I'll tell you, look, I'm just going to make a pitch for this, but like, I don't know. That's a, that is a real love story. Uh, I know that it is sort of sad and unbearable, but she does love him. She comes to visit him every single week. And, you know, there are lots and lots of people who do not make in fact, tons, you know, who don't make 60 years and still feel connected the way that they do. They even sort of joke about poisoning each other, which is like wild and sort of stupid. I mean, like you don't have to love that. Like you can sort of roll your eyes at that if you want to. But this this part actually works for me. And even Barrio clearly telling Francoise before he dies about Kurt, but them not showing it also works for me in a way that I think the Schwartz thing has sort of like a weird contempt for the viewer. Like, what are you, you're going to run us down this whole thing and not show us anything. But like, we know what the conversation was between him and Francoise. And we know that, um, that Lucienne even sort of knew at the end, right? She kisses him on the forehead and he says, you never do that. And, you know, they, they are connected in this way. And it's, it's sad. There's a sad brokenness to it, but they are all together in a way that nobody else is. So I agree with that. But with one major caveat, that the screenwriting in the 45 era is so poor on this point mm -hmm. that what what I agree that the portrait of the reconciliation is lovely and human and complicated and interesting. And it's also completely unmotivated. 
Why, why does she decide, you know, I've given him 90% of the poison I need to kill him, but the priest won't sleep with me and wants me to have a good life. So I'm just going to stop poisoning him. And, and like, what happens in 1945? Well, hold on a second. Now, I'm not saying it's extraordinarily well executed, but it does happen that the priest shows up and says to her, choose life. And like, like that, that, that is the, I mean, if there's a lesson that Lucienne learns, it's an incredibly basic one, but like love God, love life, protect life, like love your daughter, love your husband. And like, I know how much pain and suffering there is behind all of this, but like, you still have to choose life and move forward. Like he just, that's what he says to her. So hang and on. And it seems hang like on. that's what she it, did. Okay. But wait, 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 wait. Is... The message she's taking away in 45, choose life, uh, move forward, love, et cetera, et cetera. Or is the message, I know you're poisoning your husband. I'm going to turn you in if he dies. He doesn't say he's going to turn her in, though. No, no, but that's no, not but what she happens. takes that. Which, which, she knows which is she responding to? The threat or the, the, like, he does basically say to her, I know what you're doing. He does. Um, he no, absolutely does. And uh, but he also doesn't quite judge her for it. Like he gives her actionable advice, I would say. And then she goes into the she goes to the confessional looking for him. And when the priest, the other priest is there and says, like, he's gone. He specifically told me not to tell you where he was going. And she's like, get him a message. And the message is like, thank you. I it still feels like he told her that a dozen times before. Yeah. And by the way, when, when he says he left because of you, her first reaction is that small Lucienne smile that's like, I knew he was into me. <laughs> um, you know, she's pretty satisfied with herself about that. And only then does she like, oh, maybe I should send him a message. Yeah, because she's a silly person. I mean, I'm not... The, 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 she is a silly person. Um, and she is she is a shallow person i just don't think she's and like that there is the scene okay I'm, I'm sorry i like i don't think it's great i don't like love it but like they do show you her having to make the decision of giving him more wine and, and she does a little bit but when he says like have a drink with me you can see like she's also always on the verge of killing herself like she's a deeply because i think that the point of lucienne is like let's give you a normal not even normal, but like a below average sort of silly person who just wanted to have a nice life and, you know, marry a silly boy and whatever. And like the war shatters her. It shatters any dream that she might have, any idea of who she is. And I just think that like the show is saying, well, here's what happens to a, a person who, um, you know, didn't do a whole lot to, to make her own destiny. And the war hurt her, but this is how she ended up. And I don't know. I like her thing with Barrio. I I just I I sort of buy how it ends, and I buy that she she raised a miserable daughter uh, who never felt like loved by her mother, and the real love that she felt was from a. The, one question that I have that doesn't quite get answered is the. Um, it's clear that that Francoise doesn't visit Barrio very much, um, and but their relationship also seems good. Um, and so I, I guess I don't, other than, I don't know, other than maybe that's how life goes. I guess I don't have a, an answer for that. I think that's the implication of it. Yeah. They're very warm and very close and life is busy. So she hasn't seen him in a while. 
and he's sort of jokingly ribbing her about it. You never yeah. call, you never write, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to die, little you care. All right, I want to talk about Gusta. Great. Um, because I think this is a really interesting resolution of a character, also portrayed in ver- a very small number of scenes. So you said last week that you hated his adult breakup scene. But this week, they show this in context. Yeah. And he is walking, and and I think that actually changes a lot of how we uh, should think about his and Leonore's adult breakup scene. So they are walking down the street. He is, this is in 1975. He is romantically singing Stalinist songs. So he has a, a kind of, 20 years after Stalin's death, he is, uh, you know, nostalgic uh, for Stalinism. He is posting, he's still leafleting the town of Villeneuve as a 40-something, putting up posters. The breakup scene conveys that he is emotionally distant and incapable of sort of sustained human relationship with her. Then which we didn't know last week, he runs into Tequero and Larche. He's super uncomfortable. Uh, he gets dragged into the cafe with Larche, with whom he is out of touch. He says very clearly that he doesn't like his aunt. And he gets dragged into this extended conversation only to turn around and defend Danielle to Tequero over Danielle's conduct during the war. So this is the son of Marcel Larche, whose attitude, who, you know, who is a traumatized person who can't handle, uh, like, human, whose politics really get in the way of his relationships. And yet his attitude toward Danielle Larche during the war is he did what he could. And, And he actively defends him to... Tequero. And then uh, when Hortense dies, he is reaching out to Danielle for more, you know, he wants to reestablish that relationship. And then, of course, Danielle dies as well. And I just thought this was a really interesting portrait of the complexity of post-war, post-conflict trauma. Yeah, so it is one of it is a, the scene where they are in this bar, which, as best we can tell from their explanation, is a bar that we've been in many, many times before because it is now the 70s. And he's describing the place where Anselm and Antoine have it. The decor is fabulous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, and he's doing that thing where he's like in this plastic stuff. On, and, you know, and he's, but he's describing this place that we've been in many times. The bartender worked there who was working with the resistance. Um, you know, we've just, we've seen our characters in this place. And so they're now, it's the 70s. And he's having a, he's run into, he's with Tequiero, who he has brought back to Villeneuve for the first time to explain a bunch of things to him. Hortense is having her ill-fated art show that is being protested by Jews in the area. Um, and, and, and in fact, they're being protested quite uh, aggressively, like in person. The whole thing is is torn to shreds. Um, and 
he sees Gustav uh, in the mirror, I think. But the three of them sit at this table then, have cognac, and a whole... But we learn just a ton in the back and forth. We learn that Tequiero... So Gustav remembers Tequiero. Tequiero doesn't really remember him. Gustav is nine. Uh, and so we've talked about his age before, so we know that he was about 14 uh, then in 45, 14, 15. Uh, we learn that Tequiero doesn't know who Sarah is. Gustav knows who she is. And so they talk about Sarah a little bit. But what Gustav says is so devastating. He says, we knew, we only kind of knew. Um, he's like, yeah, we didn't think it was great that they were slapping stars on people or putting them on trains, but we had our own problems. And it's, Daniel sort of winces at the straightforwardness of the way Gustav describes it all. But he doesn't say it's not true. And in fact, Daniel sort of says, we didn't know. Well, we we knew without knowing. And there's just like so much being like talked about and admitted in these conversations. Um, the 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 tricks of memory. I mean, like Tequiero is just saying, I don't remember any of this. Like he's just like, this is a complete blank for him because but he was like four or five. He was like I five, mean, but I've got a five-year-old right now. I like to think my five-year-old would remember something about this moment. But, but you'd maybe, be surprised how little your five-year-old yeah, remembers maybe that's about tr- being. Maybe five. that's true. Maybe that's true. But also, like presumably, like you see in the final flashback or the very ending scene that Daniel and Hortense leave for Paris after all of this, and they leave Tequiero behind. Um, and so I, I am like mystified by how that relationship ultimately like grew because he very much sees Daniel as his father. Um, so presumably they, he grew up with Daniel in some way, um, but appears to have very little of a relationship with Hortense, doesn't even call her mom uh, or when he does, it's notable and Daniel notes it. Um, but anyway, th- these three men now sitting at the table, but the two boys who we saw grow up together in their very early years is, is a, and 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 the difference in their memories, I don't know. There's just everything about it is beautiful and amazing and wonderful. I agree. I think it's one of the it's one of the best scenes in the resolution stuff. And I and I I I think it is, you know, again, this is they're conveying so much with in in these are short scenes, um, but there's an just an enormous amount going on. Uh, and, you know, the, 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 the generational difference between Tequero and, uh, they're only five years apart or six years apart, but Gustav remembers everything and Tequero remembers nothing. And as a result, they have completely different attitudes toward what happened. You know, there's this, and in fact, Daniel says to Gustav in this conversation, do you remember Helen Cremieux? And Gustave gets this, like, there's, it's very well acted, all of this, because he he does remember her. He absolutely, and he remembers what happened, he knows what happened to her. But he, like, puts it in a bucket somewhere of, like, stuff that just had to happen and that people did to each other. And what, can I, I would just say that I think in part, part of what they're showing us about Gustave is how shallow his politics are. Because there is something about ideology without humanity that becomes 
something not particularly useful. Now, you can be a humanist like Daniel is with no ideology and that that can also not be particularly useful because it keeps you from saying important things when it matters, from picking a side when it really matters. But I would say that that Gustav is kind of the that, – that Tequiero, like Suzanne, is the – is the humanist with a strong sense of right and wrong, uh, and he cannot understand what Daniel did, whereas Gustav is the ideologue with no sense of morality. Which, of course, his father was, too, in important ways, right? I mean, his father... um, But I think part of the point here is that in the war, being a communist, even a Stalinist, in France, the war gave you something really good to do. And so somebody who had these, you know, quite murderous beliefs, which again, the show is unstinting about in that scene between him and Cassagne um, in in prison, you know, Larcher doesn't have a democratic bone in his body. Uh, And he would... um, And it's all relatively harmless in the context in which he's operating, because what it means is he's a good resistance operator. He's not afraid to die. He's uh, uh, pretty uninhibited about abandoning his kid, Um, you know, all of which makes for effective resistance. Well, you take that out of the context of the war and all of a sudden Edmund is, you know, is getting people killed in a resolved strike, right? He's um, burying uh, information about the crimes of Stalinism. And Gustav, 30 years later, has progressed so far in life that he's still leafleting the town of Villeneuve with commie propaganda, right? Like there's, you take the war away and they're, they're actually they're doing stuff that ranges from not useful to, you know, actively horrible. Um, And not that Gustav was doing such great stuff during the war, mind you, but um, uh, he was, you know, a child. And so we shouldn't like, but his, but his father who believed all the same things was. Yeah. And I just, I'm going to throw into this pile of, not being able to let go of the resistance, which I, I, I watch self-consciously to some degree thinking about at what point do you get addicted to resisting something and you lose the ability, you know, I, I think that we should all be on the lookout for that because Anselm ultimately dies because he's too addicted to resisting. Like he views literally every fight, like Suzanne, again, being the normal person she is, is saying like, hey, we just negotiated with the boss. The boss gave up some stuff. We have won. This is good. We have improved our conditions. Uh, Let's celebrate that. And Unsalm, of course, is saying, this is, no, we have not because we must fight every inch all the time. And there's a reason that in the intervening years between when Unsalm is at the sawmill and when he is leading the resistance in the woods, he's an alcoholic. And it's because he has no purpose. He only knows how to resist. It's something that just has become part of who he is. And and it's different than Gustav, but there are similarities in um, that it's a it's become a lifestyle and a pose 
And, you know, when the breakup happens between the 40-year-old Lenore and and Gustav, part of what she's saying is like, I just need more than this. Like, I need a human being. Like, stop singing me freaking Stalin Trotsky songs. Like, that's not that's right. not enough to bind us together. There were two birds soaring, and one of them was Lenin, and one of them was Stalin. And um, so I have a couple of other agenda items. Uh, I think we've now watched the whole show, and the uh, audience would be upset if we did not. Um, answer once and for all the question, who is the worst, Janine or Hortense? Your thoughts? Easy answer for me, which is Janine. Justify it. Now, look, I don't, this part of this is just a function of where the writers took both characters. Um, I have a, I have a bone to pick with the way that they went with Hortense, because I think that the psychic break, the schizophrenia, Makes you feel uh, sorry for her. Well, you just are like, you know, she was crazy. And 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 I do think that the show I, I've actually argued on the podcast multiple times that, you know, when you're dragged in front of a crowd and your nephew spits on you and they shave your head, whatever, that that could, you know, that that could be the kind of traumatizing thing. You know, I, I like I'm just not like not I'm not totally opposed to the idea that she's been driven crazy. Um that being said, I, I do think the show actually makes it very clear in the closing that it is the relationship with Mueller that made her crazy. Um, that the absence of that. Uh, and so like she is more pathetic ultimately. And Janine is much more self-aware evil. That like speech that she gives to Schwartz in the jail where she's sort of saying like, you do still have love in there for me, but like she is, she is to the end leveraging him to the end, threatening him. Now she does, I guess, ultimately let him out, get him out with her debt. But like she is, uh, whether it's the strike, uh, that she's dealing with, whether it was her collaboration, Janine is like a feral survival animal. Um, and it's always about her and she doesn't care whose skull she crushes as she climbs. Uh, and to me, she's a pretty pure, pure evil character where Hortense ends up um, sort of sad and broken. Yeah, so I think it is a hard... The, sh the show makes the question unfair by punishing Hortense so extremely and rewarding Janine. Janine pays no price for any of it and emerges as a self-righteous rich person, what the kids call a Karen, you know, which makes her hateable. That said, look, I'm going to make an argument for Hortense being the worst. And I want, let's control for the mental illness. Okay. She gets to 30 years past the war, 1975. She still is worshiping Muller. She literally has a painting of him that is, she describes as this painting is my life. She has organized her whole moral life, her whole existence around a sadistic SS man. Uh, and she describes um, 
whom she describes as I loved him and the trouble was he loved hurting people. You know, like she is, um, uh, she has no ability to reflect on her own moral conduct, um, which uh, granted Janine doesn't either. Um, she uh, confronted by the, um, uh, you know, by the people of the town, she just develops paranoias instead of, you know, wondering if she did something wrong. Um, I find her, I, I mean, Janine strikes me as a sort of homo economicus, um, you know, businesswoman who does what is necessary to maximize her position at all times. Um, Hortense loves it. And the, the eviler it is, the more excited she gets. And I think that there's a special... Janine's evil is pretty pedestrian. Hortense's is, is uncommon. You know, she says this thing at the end to Daniel, or is it to Daniel? I don't Who does she say to where, oh, 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 no, it's when she is dead because she's thrown herself out the window and Daniel has a posthumous conversation with her in the morgue when the lights have gone out. I don't like the conversations with dead people in general, by the way. I don't either. I don't, this one. I didn't like the Larche brothers, you know, breaking bread together when they're both dead. Yeah, I mostly don't. I don't know. I, the, the, the thing is, is that the quality of the conversation that they had, forget the, forget the, the setup, but the, the quality of it between Daniel and Hortense is sort of good. Um, and she, she has a line that I think is memorable there where I think he's asked, like, are you in pain? And she says, every day since I was born. And I guess I, I buy Hortense's ultimate brokenness. And at some point she stops. Like there's a, there's a, and, and maybe it's, maybe it's the day that she and Janine are together. Their great scene when they're being held captive together. And Janine ultimately decides to dime her out for her own benefit. That, that from that moment on, Hortense is a broken person. And Janine remains a thriving evil, horrible force. So I, I don't know, but I mean, I can, I, I hear you. I, I mean, I don't think either of them are good. And I think they vie admirably for um, the worst humans beyond Mueller. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're, they're the worst female. Why they're the, the, they're the worst spouses of prominent. Uh, I mean, it's important not to compare them to, either of them to the people who are actually murdering people. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not just Mueller. Like I would actually say like Edmund is a, is a very evil character through this show who gets to thrive Yes, and, and, and thrive on deception and murder. He does kill people throughout the show. He orders the murders of people throughout the show. Um, and I, I don't think, um, I don't know that we've talked quite enough about what a bad person Edmund is. Um, and I think that he 
he is evil in in global ways that that transcend what sort of both Janine and Hortense do. Um, well, he it, he represents in a very a personified form the party, right, and all that it was all that it was capable of. Um, he's an effective organizer. He's an effective resistance guy. He's also murderous. Yeah. And, and he's bloodless about it. Um, yeah. I wonder if he was a good mayor. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say no, but I don't know. 30 years. Yeah, 30 years must have been doing something, 30 right? years, yeah. He was, uh. I hope he developed a better relationship with the police department. Yeah, it looks like Barrio never got to bounce back after because he had a plan. Six years of the communist and he'd be back in the game. Doesn't look like it. So I guess, what are the other big theme questions we need to answer? I mean, I guess there's a few. One is who finds happiness? Does it does anyone on our show find happiness? Because I would say in the end, there is a in these episodes, Schwartz does seem to fall in love with this woman. And right before they sleep together for the first time, he says, I am free. And then in the next scene with Janine, he demonstrates that he is free by turning down her assistance, her father's assistance, in getting him out of jail. He refuses to take her up on it, which... And he smiles. The last shot of him is a very contented smile. Yeah, he seems like he's in a good place. He does. Hey, oh, uh, oh, I got to ask you this, too. Uh, what did you make of the Rita and Cone in Israel battling it out with the Arabs scene? It's a weird scene. Um, so weird. So it is like, true that a lot of Holocaust survivors uh, end up in, so this is 47, 48 period, uh, end up there, um, more than half a million of them over time. It is also true that a bunch of, uh, you know, the the costs of the Israeli what it what the Israelis call the War of Independence, which begins in that period and involved a whole lot of irregular fighting, is was quite high. I mean, they they lost a lot of people. Uh, the the reference that they are. Uh, uh, the Palestinians are shouting Der Yassin at them. Um, this is a reference to a massacre that took place. It's a, a Palestinian village was, you know, kind of wiped out in, in that period. So it's a reference to real events and there were reprisal killings in response to it. Um, so there's nothing, uh, there's nothing about it. That's like improbable. Um, I found it a weird resolution of those characters because the the much more typical thing that happened among European display. First of all, many, many, many French Jews stayed in France, um, and it's one of the largest Jewish communities in Europe to this day. Um, so the median French Holocaust survivor goes back to France, not to Palestine. It's not like Eastern Europe. Um, but also, um, the average, the median Holocaust survivor who ends up going to, uh, Palestine and fighting in the war of independence, uh, survives the war and, uh, lives out their life in Israel. And, you know, 
that is one of Israel's whatever else one says about it. One of its historic accomplishments was, you know, finding figuring out what to do with the remains of the Jewish communities of Europe. And so the there's nothing wrong with a portrayal of the husband and wife team forced together by the Holocaust in France, killed in uh, in a reprisal attack after Dariusin. Um, uh, it's a surprising choice to me that that's what they chose to, that, that that's the particular story that they chose to tell. Because I think numerically, it would have been far more common for uh, the two of them to remain in France or to go to Israel and kind of live there for another 40 years. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I didn't like this for a couple reasons. Number one, where are their children? David and... Uh, I don't remember Ezekiel Cohn's daughter's name, but they are orphans now. They are also, I don't know where they are or what's going on here. Children just disappear on this show. It's sort of annoying. Yeah, Janine and 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 Schwartz have a kid too. Somewhere, ostensibly. And and also, I, Suzanne had two kids. <laughs> yeah. She ended up with just Lamar, but but there was there were two kids in an early explanation to to Marcel, but whatever. Uh but the the I don't know if you picked up on this. Maybe you did, and I don't. So I'm sorry if I'm telling you something and you're like, yeah, I caught that. But Hortense is in the insane asylum rattling off some numbers. The numbers, do you remember this, where she keeps saying 10? Okay. Those numbers are the number that was on the wrist of the woman who came to visit her to tell her that Sarah Meyer was dead. Uh, that woman, Rachel, is in the van with Rita and with Ezekiel. She is sitting in the back, and at the very end of that episode, they show her dead uh, in this attack, and they pan to her wrist. Um, and so I am... Uh, this is just one of those things where I feel like narratively it just doesn't work for me, where they have decided that they're going to have this Rachel who shows up to talk about Sarah leave a very strong impression on Hortense so that Hortense is mumbling the numbers while she's in the insane asylum but doesn't quite remember what they mean to her but is saying them over and over and again. And that this woman, who we meet for a few seconds, has found her way to Israel. She was on her way to Marseille in the train, has found her way to Israel, where she winds up with Ezekiel and Rita um, and is killed in the same war that they are. Um, ah, okay. I just, it just doesn't land with me. I actually completely missed that, that that was Rachel uh, from the previous episode. Uh, so I have to say, uh, this point was completely lost on me. And uh, I agree with you, partly because it was opaque enough that I didn't get it, um, that it's not very effective. Um, uh, it is the case that uh, Jews in that period in Israel tended to, uh, uh, they were all kind of learning Hebrew and becoming creating this synthetic culture that Israel became, but they definitely organized to a large extent by linguistic groups. And so the idea that a group of French Jews from the same part of France would have been hanging out together in, in mandatory Palestine is not crazy. That said, you're talking about an insane coincidence 
uh, unless the hypothesis is that, well, they actually met in Villeneuve when, uh, you know, when she was coming by and they were on her way to Marseille and they were, you know, uh, saying goodbye to, to Mercati. It's more that there is an attempt to impute deep meaning into something and to connections that I don't think they put a lot of effort into and that don't mean much to us and that does fly over your head. Um, and there's something also cheap in the scene about, so the, the use of the, you know, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict here and the, the reason they bring Dariusin into it is so that Rita's final words can be, oh, we're just like everyone else. We we also did a massacre. Um, and, you know, that's a, an effort to have a, a level of commentary on the connectivity between, you know, human atrocities by victims and perpetrators that is a little bit glib for this purpose. I, I, it's not, I mean, Dariusin was a horrible thing. Um, and, um, and I doubt very much that the, uh, reaction of a Rita under the kind of stress that like literally under fire and about to be killed on learning of Dariusin would be, oh, we're just like the Nazis. Um, you know, and so like I actually found that a little bit cheap. Um yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, look, I, I think that it's it's safe to say that the the wrap-up season here is just it's broadly about the trauma that these people live with from having gone through this war. And that is in the children that they have that you see in Gustav and in Tequiero. Um, it is in the violent deaths of many of the people involved. It is Hortense jumping out the window, not being able to let go. It's even in Hubert uh, and, and that annoying scene, but like he's holding them hostage and it's all about, you know, being somebody who was a captive during the war and expected to come back to a country that valued, you know, the sacrifice that he made and feeling not valued. And, you know, his wife goes off with some other dude. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's just, that's, that's what this thing is. I, I think it works in some places. It doesn't work in others. Um, I certainly just think with the quality of the show in the first five and a half seasons, or I guess the first six seasons that it's, it's sort of, a it's not quite befitting the show, this this wrap-up, uh, with the exception of, of certain specific scenes that are quite elegant. Um, and so it's it's a, it's always been frustrating to me that this that they let this last season kind of sully <laughs> the rest of it, but I don't think it diminishes the overall power of the show. Agreed. And I also I think it is redeemed by some of it working very well. I will also say I think there is one other character who achieves happiness. It's just that it's alluded to and not portrayed. And I think this would have been a good model for the way the rest of the show uh, could have resolved. And that's Suzanne. Suzanne, yeah, you totally, know, you're right. They, they give you the resolution of her relationship with the party, which symbolizes the break post-war between the party and and the old socialists, and they allude in passing to her doing, you know, 
mainstream politics left stuff. And that is supposed to stand for the rest. And I think it is more satisfying, although weird as hell in the context of the neurotically detailed description of everybody else, I think it's actually a better way to end the show vis-a-vis Suzanne than following her until she, you know, has a heart attack on a street corner and racing back over her life as she fades from uh, from life. So let me ask you this, because I think we've got a wrap here, but like big picture overall. Are you glad I dragged you into watching this show? Oh, hell yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And, uh, you know, to JVL, I just want to say you should watch the show, even if Sarah will not uh, uh, hike the Appalachian Trail with you. Mm -hmm. Um, And to Bill Crystal, I want to say, you know, stop razzing Sarah about the French village. Just watch it. Uh, Mona is wise. Uh, This was a great project. Haters going to hate, man. Haters going to hate. But you know what? I I just, I hope everybody, I, I, I after watching it for the second time, um, I remain convinced, A, that this is an excellent series, uh, B, that it raises incredibly important questions about human beings and how we think about what the decisions we make in the moment, how hard it is to know what a good moral decision is in the moment without knowing the outcome. Um, I think it's reflected in Takiero's uh, you know, Takiero is morally correct in a lot of his evaluations, but he also never had to grapple with right. the questions that his father faced. So anyway, uh, thank you all for wait, doing wait, this. Bef- oh, before what? we break, we got there's we would be remiss if in our final episode we did not offer a piece of dating advice based on the show. And so I'm curious, what would what would be your uh, last three episodes piece of dating advice. Um, oh man, I really don't think in terms of this particular <laughs> prism that often. I, I got to tell you, I just I'm gonna say that uh, that that there are sometimes the proof is in the pudding on love, and that uh, the Barrio Lucien finale that you know love people think of love as the act of that falling in love. Sometimes the act of love is 60 years deep, still showing up every week to feed somebody yogurt. Yeah, and not putting bleach in the yogurt. Um, uh, I am also going to focus on uh, Lucienne and Barrio um, for my dating advice today. And that is, look, sometimes in life you are called upon to decide whether or not to poison your husband. (laughs) <laughs> and sometimes in life you are called upon uh, to decide whether to have an affair with a priest. It's important to keep those decisions separate from one another. <laughs> like you should not poison your husband because you want to have an affair with a priest. And similarly, you should not have an affair with a priest because you're poisoning your husband. So I'm not telling you how to handle either of those situations. Just keep them separate from one another. And there you have it, folks. More Ben Lidis <laughs> dating advice. I think at this point it's don't date Nazis. And whatever, we don't have to recap the whole no, thing. No, no, no. It's, Go it's, back and listen. There's only 33 episodes to get through. It's there's fine. a lot of good pearls of wisdom in there. A lot of wisdom in there. There are some people we need to thank, Sarah Longwell. We do. We need to thank Priya Gata, 
who has been producing this show, sitting She's on here with American. us every week. Great American. Got a lot of love And Korea. before her, Ben Parker was- Ben uh, Parker was doing did, this? Did, That's did right. The, did the early episodes of the podcast. Yeah. Um, and is there anybody else we need to thank? Well, um, I think we need to, f- to thank JVL for being uh, a good foil and providing- from the secret podcast, all of these forms that we use, you know, the way you introduce me, the way we sign off the show. I learned about, you know, Rebecca Black, whom I'd never heard of from, from JVL. So it's, you know, it's JVL had a deep influence on this show. That's true. Also, uh, Jonathan Series Morris, who does uh, some of the audio cleanup on this. Uh, we appreciate him. And I will say, actually, I do need to very much thank my father-in-law and Sally, Ken and Sally is their name, but they are the ones who told me about this show in the first place. And, you know, not everybody hears their in-laws say, you got to watch this seven-season show in French and thanks, boy, that sounds like a great recommendation. But uh, it was sold to me so hard that I said, all right, I'll check it out. And uh, and I've never regretted it. We're going to leave it there. And thank you, Ben Wittes. Thank you, Sarah Longwell. You're a great American. Uh, you're a great American, and uh, and and you're and now having gone through this, you are a great honorary French person too. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll let the, <laughs> the French na- decide whether or not they think the, that's right. The nation of France thanks you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, Edith, you're a great American. Take us home. Nous nous aimions bien tendrement. On me t'aime tous les amants, et puis un jour...